Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. So, hey, Jeremy, you know, the last couple of weeks, we started the show by talking about how long reserves management software takes to implement. That got me thinking. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Nala. Is that why no one can tell you how much reserves management solutions are going to cost you? Yeah. I think when they engage with a client, they simply don't even know what they're going to charge. You know, I've gotten to know Rob and Kevin over the years, the founders of PDQ Decide, you know, and I can vouch for the fact that they know reserves. They've implemented, you know, reserve solutions over the years, so they know what it takes. Well, I haven't met Rob, but I met Kevin and that dude is freaking smart. And I agree. It's cool that they say what it costs right up front before they ever even talk to the client. You know, and it's more than just the costs because, you know, they can connect the reserves management system right to your Aries and PhD win from day one. Day one, dog. All right, everybody check out www.pdqdecide.com. That's www.pdqdecide.com. And with us today, Colorado State Senator Christopher Hansen. We did it, Tim. We got a legitimate politician to come on our podcast. District 31 representing. That's right, Foles 31. So, Chris, this, this is fun, actually. So, I'm in Colorado. Chris is recording this from downtown Denver right now. But we connected through somebody in Massachusetts, Nick Mosier, who's sort of a mutual friend of a friend. So, long story, he said, you know, you need to meet Chris. Oh, and by the way, he's one of your state senators. So maybe that's not a bad idea to, to meet him. But it's, it's cool because not only is Chris a state senator here in Colorado, he worked at IHS for 10 years, really understands the oil and gas industry, the energy industry. That's a hot topic in this state right now. We're going to touch on that. But also, he's a Democrat, right? Yeah. So I don't know what our breakdown of listeners is because it's a lot of people in Texas, a lot of people in Colorado. It's probably fairly conservative, but we've got a guy who understands oil and gas, but is also on the liberal side. That should be fun. Well, you know, I'm and uh, Chris, I'm from Texas. So uh, being a Democrat here is a little bit different probably as well. (laughs) (laughs) So Chris, why don't you give us a little background on you? We we talked about the IHS thing real quick, but what's your, your background? There's a lot of cool uh, education things you're into. So, you know, Give us your yeah. bio real quick. Yeah, sure. We can get quickly get that out of the way. So I, yeah, really fun to join you guys tonight. Thanks for the invitation and looking forward to the conversation with you, with, with you about kind of the latest in the energy industry and, and have some fun with it. Uh, you know, my, my background, I, uh, I grew up in Kansas and Nebraska, uh, did engineering, did a nuclear engineering degree for undergrad and then uh, at Kansas State, and then went over and did a master's degree in, in civil engineering uh, in South Africa, uh, and was wow. there in uh, at the, right at the end of the uh, Mandela era, and, and lived in Johannesburg, and then came back and did a master's degree at MIT in, in energy policy and, and engineering systems, uh, and then went on to do a, a PhD at the University of Oxford in energy economics. So uh, yeah, kind of my misspent 20s uh, reading books uh, but then ended up at IHS for 10 years and had a variety of jobs there and uh, ran Sierra Week for a while and did corporate M&A and uh, did energy projects all over the world. So a lot of fun stuff uh, before jumping into politics. 
So, I mean, MIT and Oxford, it was, it was probably hard to find a job coming out of those schools as well, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, it was, I tell you, it was great to get back to Denver, though. I, this was like a move home for us, uh, you know, because my hometown's Goodland, and it's in mountain time and right on the Colorado border. So, yeah, it was great to get back to Denver. Yeah, see, I was going to say, like, I, you know, I think people in Kansas associate, well, maybe Kansas City is your home city. But I think a lot of people in Kansas, same thing with Anschutz, right? He was actually born in Kansas, made Denver kind of home. And, and, and I get it, you know, go, go West young man. So talk about uh, your time at IHS, right? You had a bunch of schooling, you came back home to Denver, you started working at IHS running Sarah week. Uh, give a little more detail. I think it was close to like 10 years you were there. Yeah, I, I started off, um, you know, right out of, of my PhD program, took a job in the Cambridge office uh, with CIRA, which then got bought by IHS, which is now IHS Market. So lots of M&A there. Um, but yeah, started off in the, the power and renewables uh, research team. I kind of specialized in capital allocation for power utilities, um, developed some different modeling tools uh, to, to help figure that out for utilities all over the world. Uh, got sent to Dubai for about a year and a half, did a, a energy project, uh, strategy and planning project for government of Dubai, uh, came back from that. And my wife finished up law school and we moved to Denver like the day after her last final and uh, been here ever since. Uh, and then when we moved to Denver, which was the corporate headquarters for IHS, um, did a bunch of corporate M&A, uh, product management for a while, ran uh, you know, the, the customer interface for our energy team with, with all IHS's energy customers. So a lot of really fun, fun projects. And then uh, my final, final job before I, I left to run for office was uh, to be in charge of the programming for Sierra Week. Which so is I'm, huge. I think that's this week, actually. Right? That's right. Yeah, they're doing a virtual one this year. It's kind of out of the ordinary, but they're making the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, Tim, I know you, you got a question, so I'll let, uh, give me one second. It was actually when IHS canceled Sarah Week that I first realized COVID was a big deal. Huge international conference and obviously a big time moneymaker for them, right? It sort of sets the trend for the industry for the year. And when they said no Sarah Week, I'm like, shit, man, this COVID yeah, thing is it's a for real. deal. Yeah, it's for real. That's right. I remember... You know, from and I work for a company called OVS. I'm not pitching anything here, but we had a conference set for Houston that was going to be uh, what end of March, early April. But we were bringing guys in from Malaysia and, and Asian countries, and we were having trouble getting these guys in because of the restrictions, not U.S. restrictions, but their own restrictions. And so that's when we kind of realized, oh, we're going to have to do something. So we canceled and no, it was a complete surprise to everybody. And then like, I think it was the next week that Sarah week canceled. So was, we got, we got validated. Everyone suddenly thought, oh, okay, well, it wasn't, wasn't such a bad deal, but Tim, hey, Tim's I, always been ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, I, I'm, I'm looking at your, uh, your bio on LinkedIn and you know, that's my, that's my research tool there. And you were, you know, student body president at Kansas state. I mean, that's a big university. So it, I got this feeling that politics or at least public office was always in your future. Is that the case? <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great question. I, yeah, I got really involved in student politics at K-State and, and had a great year as, as student vice president there. You know, I, I actually look back to my first debate tournament in high school is when I got the bug. Um, you know, I was 14 years old, had just joined the high school debate team and 
and had a really great first uh, tournament. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. You know, get, get up and talk about an idea or to make a case for something. And I've just been really interested in politics and policy ever since. And uh, I actually, yeah, I would take it back to when I was 14 is probably when I, when the, the fish hook got in my mouth. Well, that's pretty cool. What was the first topic you guys debated in high school? Oh, I, it is amazing. I remember this. This is such... Uh, I know you have to. Yeah, I remember <laughs> it so clearly. So the whole thing was about whether the United States should expand its uh, space exploration. And so we had all these cases about why we, you know, we should spend billions more on going to Mars and that kind of thing. Uh, but it was such a fun topic, sort of this great intersection of science and policy. And that's where you came up with the idea for Space Force? <laughs> that's right yep and the star trek flag included it was it was time to time to make it happen see tim i was totally prepared to give you a hard time about this but i'm thinking kansas state texas a&m brandeis brings me back to 1998 i'm watching on like a 13 inch tv and there's I, like a- i just watched the highlights of that game sorry oh. chris <laughs> good yeah so I, honestly i was hoping it was texas a&m that went down but no kansas state was like knocking on the door of going to a championship game right? number three number three yeah that's and exactly miami right. had just miami had just dealt them a favor so then kansas state if they win that game is one two and they go to the oh. they go to the championship it was not to be but let's let's also lament the fact that the conferences are totally messed up now and yeah. kansas state has to go to morgantown for a conference game instead of lincoln it's pretty messed up and or, I think uh, maybe Boulder. we can all agree that it's all uh, UT Austin's fault, uh, which yeah, I think oh, no, yeah. pretty uh, clearly. Oh. All right. If, if we want to have a conversation about that, I have I can go on a whole podcast just on that bit. But yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. It's all those guys in Austin. Yeah. They were just demanding big TV payday, and everyone said, forget it, we're out. And look Don't what worry. we got now. We've got mostly A&M guys listening to this, you know, whatever, right. horns down, right? So we're, we're fine. But no, I sorry, had to bring it up because I distinctly remember on a, you know, color, very small TV in 1998. That was a good game. It was a great game. That that moment is etched for me because we were standing in our living room trying to get out of the house to go to a Christmas party. And we couldn't leave. And, you know, and the game, game just kept going and going. And then, Bang. Well, whatever. At least he got Darren Sproles. So there you go. Uh, Chris, talk about the transition then to to politics. Like, obviously, this is this has been on your mind, right? Had been on your mind. And you finished your time at IHS. It's probably starting to man manifest. What was your first position in a, you know, in your political career at that point? And, and how is it transition? And more importantly, where is it going? Did we just have the future? 2032 president of the United States on our podcast. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I, I jumped into this, you, you sort of, there's, there's sort of a burn the ships moment, right? There's no going back. So I, you know, I've left my job at IHS and I decided to file for office at about the same time. And, you know, it was just very clear that you can't have a full-time corporate job and, and run for political office. It's basically impossible. So I was, you know, you're either in or you're not. And so I, I was all in and uh, started knocking doors, started my campaign for the state house in uh, early 2015. And, uh, you know, the election was 18 months away, uh, you know, the, the next summer for the, the Democratic primary, which is essentially the election in Denver. And I, you know, just started knocking doors. And every day I would go do 50, 60, 70 doors and write emails and raise money and just, you know, block and tackle day after day. 
And it was such an amazing experience. And, and that was really 2015, 2016 for me was kind of a baptism by fire. And it was my first time to run for, you know, actually there's some similarity to running for student body president as it turns out, but you know, this is now 20 years later and, and, or 15 years later, and here, here I am running uh, for state house. And then, you know, that then led me to run for the state Senate and uh, came in initially on a vacancy committee because my state Senator got very sick and had to resign. And so I won the vacancy committee, which is a group of about 300 people who, who choose a replacement and then immediately had to start running for, you know, a full four year term. And, and was successful in that uh, last summer and last fall and uh, ended up winning about 80% of the vote last November. So it's been been a really, really great journey. And now I'm settling into the to the state Senate and, um, you know, getting involved in my uh, uh, represent the Senate in the Joint Budget Committee and chair uh, Senate appropriations now. And so, you know, just really doing a lot of energy and environmental legislation and and working on the budget. Well, Congratulations. It sounds like a landslide. That's pretty awesome. You didn't answer the question like a politician. Where is this going to take you? Are you going to be president of the United States? But you know, I'm not going to hold it against you. So, Tim, go ahead. No, we're prepared to announce 2032 Chris Hansen for president. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I, first of all, I can empathize with that decision to you know, start knocking on doors because you know, both Jeremy and I have had to do cold calls out of necessity. We're sales guys. And that first few times you have to pick up that phone or go knock on a door, that's, uh, you know, it's personal. It's not like sending out an email where you can just start blasting out. It's a personal uh, and a risky, you feel risky when you're doing it. So I, I you know, I applaud yeah. you for being able to go do that. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, you're absolutely right. It is very akin to being a sales person for, you know, for your company or for something you're working on. I think the big difference though, is that you suddenly become the product. Like yes. I'm not, I'm not selling something else. I show up and knock on somebody's door and I'm pitching them on me and it, it is yeah. deeply personal, uh, even more so at that point. Well, it's funny. I feel like no's to me are personal, but now thinking about that, man, a no to you must've been, man, that that's really personal. <laughs> well, but yeah, gotta, and you, you've got to have to build up a, you know, kind of a thick skin because you're absolutely right. I mean, you get rejected or somebody says, get off my lawn or get off my porch or you know, I, I, I'll never vote for a Democrat or I'll never vote for you. And it's hard not to take it personally. And you just kind of have to remind yourself like, hey, I just need 51 <laughs> percent. I don't have to get every vote. <laughs> and, and you never will. Right. Yeah. It's just not not how it is. So, you know, I want to I, I want to jump in a little bit to energy policy, uh, the views on oil and gas in Colorado, because it's a hot topic. This state does, I think, the fifth most uh, production output. Uh, in terms of oil and natural gas in the country, right? There's a few states ahead of it, but nonetheless, it's pretty liquids rich here. So what do you deal with? I know this is a hot topic for you, Chris. How does this go down? Is it does, is it divided by party lines? Do people kind of cross over and understand the value of, of where oil and gas is today versus the kind of the ultimate energy transition? You mind diving into that for us a little bit? Yeah, I mean, look, you're absolutely right. There are significant tensions on this, and and it makes sense because you know you've got a very broad spectrum of opinions. Um, some folks who you know are like uh, kind of the we should be able to drill where and when we want, and then there's the whole other crowd that wants to shut the entire industry down and and ban fracking in the state of Colorado. And you know, I I guess I've always been somebody who's 
who's tried to kind of play between, you know, the, the football metaphor would be playing between the, the, the 20s or play between the 40s sure. um, and try to find common ground and try to figure out, you know, problem solving types of legislation as opposed to, you know, trying to push one uh, hard ideology over another. Yeah, and just be I pragmatic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I, I suppose that's the engineer in me coming out. It's like you can't uh, put forward policies that just don't, you know, that violate the second law of thermodynamics, for goodness sakes. You know, we still have to pay attention <laughs> to physics. And, and in Jeremy doing just passed out when you said that. Two What's engineers that? on the call. I'm, lo- I'm losing two engineers on the call. Let's get back to Jeremy the just passed call. out when you start brought up thermodynamics. <laughs> but, no, I, I, but I'm with you, man. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't make it any easier, but at least if you stay in that zone of like, Hey, we're going to try to solve a problem as opposed to, we're just going to go down and make a loud speech or we're going to, you know, try to score some cheap political points. Um, you know, you just get to a better place. And the other thing I think I've learned in five years at the Capitol is, uh, at, at, you know, the state Capitol is, is really making sure you're talking to the people who disagree with you. Um, and oftentimes you might surprise yourself that, they might agree with you on something and, and therein lies, you know, the start of a compromise and, and to get to a better place on a bill. Which is why ultimately I like the views of politicians in Colorado. Cause I think it's reflective of what we have nationally where people are super set in their ways. Things are divided, but here you just sort of have to view things in what is best for the state. Cause this is a special place and we all know that. And, the transition has happened. I think this used to be a red state, maybe in the 80s, 90s. It's firmly a blue state now. But people still kind of comprehend, as we saw with 112, that oil and gas is important here, right? Maybe there's sort of uh, parameters that need to be put in place. But nonetheless, um, it's a big driver for industry. Now we're seeing more and more tech come in here. But, you know, it's, it's not Texas. I've always said this, too. Even though Colorado has mountains, I don't think politicians move mountains to get companies to come here. Texas, on the other hand, pushes all the mountains out of the way to get the Oracles, the Teslas, the oil companies, whatever it is, to headquarter themselves there. And, you know, that's it's just sort of like a fundamental difference. And I'd love to see Colorado start going in that in that direction as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the differences is Colorado, when you talk about sort of business incentives and you mentioned some of the companies that have set up you know, headquarters or regional headquarters, Colorado has not had a tough time getting companies to come here, as you said. I mean, it's a great quality of life. People love all the amenities that come with being in Colorado. And so we haven't had to do much in the way, uh, certainly compared to other states like Texas or Wisconsin are a couple that come to mind where they have to have pretty major incentives in place. And I, I think Colorado has been able to not you know, that we haven't had to do that, but we've still had very, you know, strong economic growth over the last 10 years. He may have just lost the Texas vote in 2013. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, in the, yeah, in the won't vote for Democrats, I think Texas has already lost for Chris in 2032. We'll see. Well, I tell you what, fellas, uh, Texas is changing. It's oh, not, oh, it is in my district where I live. Uh, it, was always considered if you don't vote in the primary, your your vote doesn't count because it just yeah. goes it just goes red. That's changing. It was a fight this year. I mean, it really was. Well, that's still right. went yeah. red, but yeah, it was I mean, it was a fight. I mean, look at Harris County. Look at Travis County. I mean, those are those are blue counties now. 
Um, well, I mean, you know, uh, Harris has been Harris has been blue for a long time, but yeah, yeah and that's really kind of. Yeah, it's just the urbanization part. But I got a quick kind of a mechanics question. This is a, and I guess this is more for our Texas crowd, but the Texas state legislature is a a part time body. Okay. Well, on paper, on paper, it is. This is exactly. a really fascinating topic. And yeah. in Colorado, it it, it is a full time body. I think you can it, correct me. No, we're part time here too. We're part time, and. And this is a really interesting topic. I'll, let me just jump in because I, I think there's a really big gap between reality of being a legislator in Texas and Colorado and what's on paper. So in Texas, they meet once every two years, I mean, for a very short session. And the whole idea was, well, we want to have small government. We want to you know, not have the legislature meeting all the time. But what effectively happens is that the, the legislators in Texas that I'm friends with on both sides of the aisle down there, they are working full time. 365 days a year. And it's the same thing here in Colorado. We only meet for 120 days every year on a normal calendar, but we're working full time. And and really all you're doing is just reducing the number of days where you have a gavel in your hand at the Capitol. But the, the work doesn't stop. I mean, Texas is a is a gigantic state. Colorado, you know, $34 billion state budget, six almost six million people. And essentially, the, you know, the legislature is is helping to manage the economy, helping to manage the state budget. And it's not like it's 1910 anymore, where the state governments were very small and didn't have a lot of responsibility. Now they they take on a lot. And and it means that we should really just stop the facade and just go ahead and have a full time legislature, because that's effectively what's already happening. I mean, yeah. I, I, I would tend to agree without someone that, you know, dives too deeply into politics. I, I get it, you know, fundamentally that the question that that brings up for me though, Chris is clearly you dove in hard to oil and gas and energy and, and uh, oil and gas conferences. Are you able with your schedule to pay attention to the Sarah weeks and attend any of the sort of local, regional, national oil and gas type events, or does your job just sort of prohibit that now? Yeah, I, st- I still do a lot of energy conferences. I mean, one of the nice things about, you know, the era of Zoom is that we can just jump on these things with having, having, having to worry about travel. In fact, I was on a energy policy conference this morning after I walked off the Senate floor and was able to just join that quickly from my office. Um, you know, I, I actually, one of my side gigs, um, you know, that I do outside the legislature is I run the Colorado Energy and Water Institute. Um, we do a couple of events every year. We invite industry experts in for you know, for uh, a conference. And so I, I not only attend and go to a lot of them, but I, I actually run a couple myself. So yeah, it's still, and I really love it because I feel like I get to hear from the best and brightest around the country on, you know, latest trends, make sure I'm up to date, make sure in my drafting of new legislation, you know, I'm not missing something. And so I, I really feel like it's symbiotic and, and try to stay really heavily engaged in the industry and academic conferences. Yeah, that's cool. Can you tell me just a little bit more about that? I mean, first of all, I accept the opportunity to speak. Thank you very much, Chris, for that invitation. Um, but I, I'm curious, I'd like to, to hear a little bit more about the Colorado what, Water and, and Energy uh, group that you've put together. What, what do you guys yeah. do and what, how do you meet? I'm, I'm, I haven't heard of this, so I'm curious. Yeah, we're you know it's relatively new. We, I started it three years ago with a, a couple of my my friends. We started this up. The, yeah, the CWI is for short C E W I, 
And, you know, basically what we've done is, is we get together, you know, 150, 200 people. Um, the last three years we've met in Steamboat. Next year, we're going to be switching over to meet uh, in the Fraser Valley at Devil's Thumb Ranch. And we get together for, you know, a few nights and, and uh, have, have different panels and discussions and debates uh, on the latest energy topics. You know, we cover uh, state level uh, regulation of oil and gas. We cover power sector issues. Uh, we cover water management issues, which of course are super important for upstream uh, players. Uh, we look at you know the, the macro scale of, of what's happening in the Colorado River Basin and how we get more uh, out of less water, uh, especially with with more uh, pressure on our water supplies because of climate change. So lots of really important topics, um, you know, and we just mix it up each year to try to make sure we're hitting the the latest and greatest. Nice. Yeah, no, definitely want to be a part. That's going to be fun. That's really cool. And thanks for the, I agree that being, a, you know, in the legislature body, you're always on, you're always, you know, it, it, state of Texas is kind of weird, it, you know, it, 60 days and it's a flurry of activity. And all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of new laws that go into effect all at once, but they're talked about for two years, right. you know, going into them. So you, you got a you know pretty good idea what's coming on. So I'm, Curious about the future of energy policy in the state of Colorado and how it impacts the rest of of the country. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I that's it's a good way to frame it. I mean, you know, I don't I don't think Colorado, um, you know, I, I guess I would say we punch above our weight in this category. I think people see Colorado as not California and not Texas. We're somewhere yeah. we're somewhere yeah. in between, and so I think when we make you know, some, some policy decisions and especially in the energy space, it gets some extra attention as a result. And, you know, we've got, I think if, you know, we kind of joke that the Colorado way we were talking before about being pragmatic and, and not getting overly partisan. Um, and I think we've largely been able to do that. I mean, it's obviously in the eye of the beholder. I know people have disagreed with some of the things we've done up here recently, but I think we've been able to strike a decent balance. I mean, we have the most, um, uh, stringent methane regulations in the world when it comes to upstream production. And there's a lot of other jurisdictions now that are copying those rules. Um, we've got some really great rules around monitoring water quality around uh, drilling pads. Again, other jurisdictions have started to, to use those rules. Um, some of the areas where I spend a lot of time in on the power side, uh, we did a, a securitization bill to try to help solve the stranded asset problem when we close down old power plants and now, you know, there's a half dozen other states that are looking at using that same approach. And so I, I think there is, you know, a, a case to be made that when, when Colorado moves, uh, you know, other folks are paying attention to that because we are sort of more middle of the road, I think, policy wise. You know, we're not too far removed. I'm glad you brought up power because we're not too far removed from the craziness that happened in Texas. I know people move quickly, right? We sort of put things behind us and it's the same way that women, you know, have a second child after having a first, yeah. after, after witnessing the pain and suffering that looks like, and then they want to have another one, you know, shortly after. But, you know, of course, like, like selfishly, I saw what happened in Texas and I started, you know, basically asking Google, could that happen here in Colorado? And, and I'm curious, like, from a from a political viewpoint, like how did something like that happen, and is there a possibility something like that 
could happen here in Colorado with a, you know, a, a string of negative 10 degree days. Uh, and it just sort of blasts the, the grid. Well, I, I'm so glad you asked. I actually just published an op-ed uh, on that very topic uh, in the Denver Post last weekend. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I think this is a, something that we need to take a hard look at in Colorado. Um, you know, one of the problems in Texas, among many, is that they are, ERCOT is a, an island in the grid, right? It's, it's not well interconnected with its neighbors. There's a few DC inner ties that have some capacity, but certainly not much when it compares to the whole load of ERCOT. And it meant that they couldn't import power when they were short. It meant that prices spiked for consumers. And Colorado, while we don't have the same situation as ERCOT, we are not well connected to our neighbors. And so I am running a bill, uh, Senate Bill 70 this year. It's a bipartisan bill. In fact, my first four bills this year are all bipartisan. Uh, I'm running this particular one with Don Corum, who's a state senator from Montrose, Republican. And we're really trying to address the transmission uh, inadequacy in the state so that we don't repeat what happened in Texas. And in fact, in Colorado during that storm, we had a big spike in natural gas prices. It's going to mean about $650 million of additional cost for consumers. We're trying to figure that out right now with oh, Excel. Snap. And, you know, there were a couple of utilities up by Fort Collins that had to reduce load. Uh, and Excel had to do some of that too. So we're not immune to this stuff. And I think we need to use this as a wake-up call and, and make some significant changes. Yeah, I think that's that question is being asked by a lot of states and even yeah. governments. I mean, this thing in Texas rippled down into Mexico pretty quickly, you know, because natural gas wasn't flowing across the border anymore, right? Um, because, you know, it was all being held here. So it it does, has an impact, you know, in a lot of different areas. So that, glad you're looking into that, certainly. Can, can it happen again in Texas? Did anything actually change from that? Or is it now Texas just hopes I think they don't get a string of ridiculous weather. Well, speaking as a Texan, I'm watching yeah. the debate. I mean, there's I, everyone's getting the political points that they can right now. But I think, you know, we had the warning shot in 2011 that wasn't heated. And now we've got this thing happening. So I think there will be some significant reform. Uh, and, you know, even account and a, certainly a lot more accountability is going to take place. Uh, but, you know. It could happen again, uh, com maybe completely different, uh, but it definitely could, I think. Well, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, it's I, I saw some of the videotape from the 2011 Texas legislative hearings, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there was not really any significant changes made after that uh, incident or that weather event. And here we are. And it was you know worse than it was in 2011. So I, I think, you know, ERCOT is going to have to be fundamentally uh, reconceived uh, to, to mitigate these risks. And, you know, all of us in oil and gas and energy and, and electricity sectors, right, we know about hedging. Um, luckily, Colorado was about 60% hedged with its natural gas supplies on the utility side. But it's, you know, we these are the, these are when you have total market exposure, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. No, that, it's a it's an interesting topic, and look at you out there grinding the tape like Bill Snyder, right? Is that the right name, <laughs> <laughs> Coach Coach Snyder? That's Chris, this is this has been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I I really appreciate your your viewpoint. I think you know you're not you're not afraid to get into the tough topics because in, here in Colorado, there's there's many of them. But um, Tim has a question for you. Yeah, I wanted to. This is on a personal side, so you've. 
you've been in the industry, you're now in the public sector. I'm curious, the learnings, the things that you learned that you didn't, from being a, a state senator or a state congressman, that you didn't expect to learn, that you thought you, you understood what it was going to be like and what's different than what you expected? Wow. Yeah, it's that's a great one. I, you know, I think um, there's a lot of kind of life is like a box of chocolates at the state legislature because you you show up on a given day and you've got to be able to to make decisions, to make uh, judgments, to take votes on what could be 25, 30 sub different subjects every single day. Um, that's certainly the case, you know, in the joint budget committee where we're going over a thousand line items in the state budget and allocating, you know, what ends up being about 30 to 35 billion dollars a year. And, you know, that is something that you kind of have to experience to 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 be able to, to even start to understand it. And and I, I think I had a pretty clear eyed view of what I was getting myself into. I knew it would be long days. I knew there'd be, you know, the, the some of the political silliness that you have to deal with in this job. There'd be angry constituents. There'd be people that'd be yelling at you. All of that I sort of expected. Um, but I think just the pace and the the variety um, that that we have on our plates here, um, it's it's been one of the funnest parts of the job, but it's also, you know, takes it takes a lot of work. You probably didn't expect that those days would be long because of doing podcasts at the end of your day. So either way, we, we appreciate you doing it. How do, how do people vote for you? Like what ballots do you show up on and, and uh, where do we find you? Well, yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, I, I'm, you know, got elected uh, in, in November of 20 and I've got a four year term. So if I, if I run for reelection for the state Senate, I'll be back on the ballot in November of 24. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I get a reprieve this next cycle. I, I don't have to run. No, oh, that's, that's fantastic. 2032, man. 2032. <laughs> Tim, I know it's going to be tough for you, but you got to give it some thought. This is personal. Man, if you get yourself on a democratic primary, I'll, I'll switch over and vote in the democratic primary that year to get you in. Texas cool. is going to be a blue state by then anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, well guys, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Uh, chat. It's really, really fun to spend some time with you and appreciate you. Yeah. You letting a Democrat come on your, uh, on your podcast. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, post vaccine, I'm coming up to your office to grab a, a drink or something. We'll have some Breckenridge whiskey or some Weldworks beer or something like that. Sounds great. Love it. Right. Thanks, man. 